back in February of this year, we invited you, our wonderful, enthusiastic community, to be part of the Plan Strong Test Kitchen and provide us with feedback around our all-new burger mixes. And I got to tell you, the feedback and support that you guys showed us blew us away, and we have been hard at work in the kitchen, and we now have our first program graduates, three delicious skillet burger mixes. We're going to be launching them into the universe so you can stock up ahead of Memorial Day weekend. You can check them out at planstrong.com. The three flavors are black bean, portobello mushroom, and our all-new sweet curry. Once mixed with six to seven ounces of water or broth, the dough may be pan-fried, air-fried, or baked to a crispy, aromatic, rich golden brown. These mixes, they take the hard work out of making healthy burgers at home and yield quality, quality results. They're whole grain, oil-free, a great source of protein and fiber, and they're made from a combination of ground oats, beans, seeds, and spices without any of the added sugar or excessive salt. I want to thank all of you for being such an important part of the Plant Strong Test Kitchen, and I know that you're going to love these as much as I do. Thanks so much. Thanks for spending time with us today. If you're new, I'm Rip Esselstyn, the founder of Plant Strong by Engine 2, and your host on this journey to eat more plants. This season of Plant Strong, our theme is the heart of a hero. We're celebrating the disruptive heroes in this movement whose pioneering work and research are amplifying the message about plants to reach as many people as possible. We're also celebrating the everyday heroes, many of whom are first responders, like our Bronx firefighter, Joe Inga from season one, and we're helping them to overcome the obstacles that you too may be facing at home. Welcome to Plant Strong. I am excited about this program. I was just given a prescription last week from my doctor for high cholesterol, and I haven't taken it yet because I'm gonna try this program, and I'm going to beat my cholesterol with this program instead of drugs. Today we are celebrating a fierce and fearless hero in the Plant Strong movement. Her name is Dr. Michelle McMacken, and as you're going to hear, she is in the trenches doing the day-to-day -day work by prescribing plants to her patients at Bellevue Hospital, the oldest hospital in America. And by doing so, she is literally carving a pathway within a super traditional setting so that other providers may follow in the slipstream. I think you're going to be inspired by her story and be hopeful that healthcare is finally catching up to what we all know to be true. Once doctors experience the joy of helping their patients get in the driver's seat with their health, they're going to discover the most rewarding work on the planet. Enjoy this super poignant conversation. Okay, I am here in New York City, came to your stomping grounds. Um, I'm here with Dr. Michelle McMacken. I think we've known each other, if I'm not mistaken. I'm, I'm going to say going back maybe five years now. A few years, since, for sure. Since you know, I heard about this amazing female doctor that was like the greatest, newest thing in, in plant-based. And I like so, that description. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> and uh, we invited you to come out to, I think it was an event in Pasadena, yeah. California. Yeah. You gave an amazing keynote speech there. And, um, and we've kind of been going around in very similar circles. Mm -hmm. And then just this last year, or actually two years ago at Plantstock, you came out yes. and you did your talk on diabetes. Yes, Why? my passion plants or I think sweet medicine for diabetes yes. was that is that the exact yes. title something like that my plant-based nutrition is sweet medicine for diabetes yes yeah. yes and didn't you actually recently 
um, give that talk to the American Diabetes Association. Is that correct? I gave a version of that talk to them. Actually, they were great. They invited me to do, there was so much interest that they had me do a science talk and a workshop. So one was all the science behind plant-based diets for diabetes, and then the other was how do you actually do it? So if you are a practitioner and you want to counsel your patients, how do you do it? So, I mean, that what a thrill to have a, an association like that invite you to come speak, it was a, right? It was awesome. And what does that say about them? Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, I think that they recognize mm. that the data are very strong for not just for a plant-based diet and actually preventing and treating type 2 diabetes and in many cases putting it into remission, mm-hmm. but also for preventing the complications. And in fact, they when they reached out to me to give that talk, they said one of the most um, one of the things we're most interested in hearing about is not just that a plant-based diet is great for diabetes, but what does it do for the complications mm-hmm. of diabetes, which is what, of course, people actually die of, cardiovascular disease, kidney disease, mm-hmm. and they live with painful neuropathy, burning nerve pain. So plant-based diet has been shown to be effective in all of those domains, and so that's part of the mm-hmm. compelling, many compelling mm-hmm. reasons to use it. Right. The fallout from diabetes is yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. And what is it now? We have close to what? Half of the America that's pre-diabetic or, or type two diabetic, right. something th- like that. That's, that sounds exactly right. I think it's something like forty percent are pre-diabetic, another twelve percent actually have diabetes. And then there's all these people that haven't been diagnosed and are living with pre-diabetes and don't know it. Um, yeah. So, and in my practice, you know, it's it's I don't go an hour without seeing pre-diabetes or type two. So you 2 mentioned your practice. Yes. Um, so what what kind of a doctor are you? I am an internal medicine doctor, so I treat adults, I don't treat kids, um, and I manage uh, basically chronic disease. So most of my practice is people coming in with heart disease, type 2 diabetes, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, gout, kidney stones, osteoporosis, history of cancer, high, you know, high risk of cancer because of a family history or some other reason, mm-hmm. um, obesity, weight management issues. Right. And so how old were you when you decided that you wanted to be a doctor? You did. This is, that, that was actually, so I... <clears throat> Why are you laughing? I'm just laughing because <laughs> I'm going to... It was, it was a very, um, it was not a very linear road for me. So I went to uh, college. We and, like zigzags. Yeah, it was, it was very zigzaggy. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I didn't take any science classes in college. I was an English major. I loved to, you know, loved to read and write papers on books and analyze and... Um, towards the end of college, because my parents are scientists, and they were bugging me. They said, take a science class. And I took, you know, one semester of chemistry just to please them. And then I got out. Yeah. Um, then I went to work at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta as a writer editor. Mm-hmm. And through my experience there, I decided I wanted to go to medical school, not to necessarily directly take care of patients, but to go on outbreak investigations. You know, I saw these public health folks going out and investigating spreads of viruses and it sounded really cool and exciting and I thought I'll go to med school and I'll get a degree in public health and a medical degree and I'll do that and so Mm -hmm. I enrolled I had to then take all my science classes so I went and took all my science classes I did a post-bac program took uh, general chemistry organic chemistry biology and physics all in a year you can remember all the courses you took. That's impressive. <laughs> well, it turns out I loved them. <laughs> yeah. I actually loved them. I was like, oh, I actually was meant to do science. And I loved, oh my gosh, I loved organic chemistry the best. And wow. it got me all fired up. I got to, you know, came to New York, went to med school. Um, and Where'd about, you go to med school? I went to Columbia. Okay. Yeah. And about halfway through med school, I realized, you know what? I don't want to go on any outbreak investigations. I just want to treat asthma and blood pressure. And, you know, I want to be a primary care doctor and um, I want to know my patients for years and be sort of their person that they trust and that helps them take care of their health. So that's what I did. Okay. But I was, yeah, I was not a traditional student. I mean, I started med school when I was, uh, I think, 28. Okay. And so you're, you're currently at Bellevue. Is that where you came out and have you been there your whole career? I have been there my whole career. So after after my med- after medical school, I did my internship at Cornell, also here in New York, yeah. uh, and residency. And then I this was my first job. So now Bellevue has the distinction of being 
What exactly? So Bellevue, so it's funny, a lot of people, when they hear Bellevue, they think of a psychiatric hospital. So let's <laughs> yes, just get, yes, let's yes. just, let's talk about that. Let's get that out. Um, so Bellevue does um, have a history, of, a long history of um, providing mental health care. It has probably, I think, something like the, either the, the most or among the most psychiatric beds of any hospital in the country. Wow. But Bellevue is a regular hospital, so it take you know we we are a tertiary referral center. We're a level one trauma center. We have state of the art everything, so everything you would ever need in a hospital we have, and we actually uh, happen to be the oldest continuously operating hospital in America. So when was it? I, so mean, I think 1736. I want to say is when it was founded. Um, yeah, and it's so it's go almost 300 years. <laughs> It's getting up there. Oh, yeah, it's pretty cool. So it's a it's a place with tons of history, tons of um, you know amazing innovation, and you know the first I think the first oh. maternity ward, the first ambulance, you know all of these really cool things that Bellevue has done over the years. Um, they tr- you have TB sanatorium. You can actually still go to these these places still exist within the actual hospital of Bellevue. So it's a pretty cool place. Okay, and and so. How long have you been there? So I have been there since 2004. 2004. 15 years. Okay, Fif- uh, 15 years. Yeah. And so when when did you start to sniff around and discover this <laughs> kind of uh, lifestyle-type medicine? Yeah, so I, I basically had a very traditional sort of standard practice for the first nine or so years that I was yeah. there where I would patient would come to me with high blood pressure and or high cholesterol and I would say hey you know your blood pressure is a little high your cholesterol is high uh, you might want to eat a low salt diet avoid fat something you know something that I I had absolutely no idea I had no evidence base for saying what I was saying because I'd never been trained in nutrition right like most doctors and and then I would say eventually I knew they would probably end up on meds because I hadn't really given them any real advice and they would come back to me, and sure enough, you know, the next visit, I'd say, okay, well, that didn't work, so let's start medicine. And it was not until 2013 when um, I had been, at that point, a primary care doctor for nine years, was really starting to, quite honestly, feel pretty burned out. You know, being a primary care doctor is a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It's not just the, it's not just the, you know, the number of patients you have to see per day, uh, but it's also all the forms and prior authorizations for medications and all the paperwork that goes with it. And most of all, I think I was feeling like what I am is, you know, I, I'm connecting with my patients, but not on the deepest level that I can. And it was very much, you know, this circle of more and more medication and feeling like I wasn't actually truly intervening. Um, so that burnout led me to... Uh, one afternoon, I remember sitting at work and thinking, well, I have a little bit of extra money for continuing medical education. And I found myself Googling lifestyle conference. And I honestly, I honestly think I was just looking for a better lifestyle for myself. I don't think I had my patience in mind at that point. Yeah. I was like, my lifestyle is, sucks. You know, I'm, it's... Now, but were you healthy? I was healthy. Yeah. And I mean... I mean, it wasn't, you know, it just was, it just, it feels like, it felt like a grind. Mm -hmm. So uh, the first hit that came up when I Googled lifestyle conference was American College of Lifestyle Medicine, Mm -hmm. which is a term I had never heard before, lifestyle medicine. And, um, and I thought, well, I have no idea what this is, but I have this extra money and, you know, why not? And I, and I signed up and I went and that was October of 2013 in Washington, D.C., I went to this conference, and I remember showing up in the opening, you know, opening few talks were uh, your dad. Right. Dr. Esselstyn. Yeah. Um, I, re- I know the man. You know him. Do you have you heard of him? Um, I know I heard uh, D- uh, Dean Ornish. Dr. Ornish spoke. Yeah. Michael Greger. You know, I-, I had never heard any of these people before. I'd never heard of any of this before. And what are you what are you thinking as you're sitting there at this conference, hearing all this stuff? Is it are you like going, wow, I am like blown away? I was away? flipping out. Yeah. I was there with a colleague of mine, and she and I went together. And we, I remember we were passing notes. And I was like, can you believe this? <laughs> I was like, underlining, like, do you like? And I remember going back to my hotel room the the first night of the conference, and I I honestly could barely sleep. Like I was so wired. Wow. 
because I, I just couldn't believe all this information. I had, I had never heard of it before. Like, how do you, how do you get nine years into practice mm-hmm. and then see a study like healthy living is the best revenge? Now, this is a sort of one of those landmark studies that was published a few years ago that basically showed that just following four lifestyle factors, I think it's, you know, eating a relatively healthy diet, exercising about 30 minutes a day, not smoking and having a healthy body weight, that those four factors in combination yeah. yield a 78% reduction in the risk of chronic disease, of the most common chronic diseases. I mean, that's insane. That is insane. So, and yet, I remember from that study, it, you know, only like 9% of people in that giant study were actually doing it. So then there's this huge gap between what is clearly beneficial for people and what people are actually doing. And so you're realizing there's, okay, there's a gap in my education. There's a gap in what people are doing. There's all these gaps. And we've, like, I have to start making up for lost time. Hmm. And I can't go back to my office without incorporating this in my practice. Like it's, 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 there's just no way. Well, I think at this point, once you have the knowledge you're, you were starting to gain, it's unconscionable and it almost, you probably feel like it would be egregious. Exactly. And then, but there's still that gap that I never got the training. Right. (laughs) So, so what, so what, so what did you do over the next, I don't know, how long did it take you before you felt comfortable practicing this type of lifestyle medicine? So literally the Monday morning that I got back to work, (laughs) I was like, I'm not wasting any time. Right. The Monday morning that I got back to work, I, I remember my nine o'clock patient was a patient that, you know, I'd already, I'd known and I had already been her doctor and she was living with type two diabetes. She had, she was living with heart disease, high blood pressure and high cholesterol. She's from West Africa. And I sat down and I spoke with her for the very first time. All I did was say, what do you like to eat? Yeah. And it was a question I had basically never asked a patient before. Right. I was like, I don't have to get training to ask, what do you like to eat? <laughs> like, that's... Don't have to get permission from the right? hospital. <laughs> right, that's right. Hopefully not. And she told me. And I thought, you know, well, I have a, I'm starting to get a sense of what the overall framework of evidence supports as far as what's a healthy eating pattern and what you're eating is not super consistent with that. You know, and, and I remember sitting down with her and saying, okay, well, I know one thing for sure. It's not controversial. You should probably eat more fruits and vegetables. Yeah. So how are we going to make that happen? Which ones do you like? Which, which fruits and vegetables do you like? Can you and I set a goal that you're going to have, you know, five fruits and vegetables per day between now and the next visit? Because she was already eating some. And she said, that's great. Hmm. And we just kept building from there. I mean, it was just kind of winging it, honestly. Right. But it worked, and I started doing it with lots of patients. I started doing it with almost every patient I saw. And so, was that your was that your kind of uh, your methodology was to say, was "What do you eat?" <laughs> yeah. And then, can we add more fruits and vegetables? Yeah. Maybe. I mean, Let's is that a like cl- a first step? Then, yeah. would you say? It, it, Just- it's it it I, you know. Listen, it if you bring up in my experience when I bring up food with patients, yeah. the vast majority want to talk about it. So that was the first realization. This yeah. is not something that people are like not wanting to, you know, they, it actually, they were engaged and they wanted uh-huh. to hear what I thought they should be eating. So that was very empowering for me to know that. And then I realized I also have a responsibility yeah. to educate myself further. Yeah. Um, but I, so I started with sort of that low hanging fruit, which is fruit and vegetables. Exactly. <laughs> and, um, and then sort of building from there as I started doing more of my own research, reading papers and getting educated about nutrition and, as I was doing that, I was starting to see results in my patients from these hmm. little snippets of conversation throughout multiple visits. And their cholesterol was coming down, their blood pressure was coming down, their blood sugar was coming down, they were losing weight and they were feeling better. I mean, not everybody, but lots enough yeah. people that I knew that this was working and they were so excited to talk to me. It was like, I, it was like we were, we had like, it was like, you know, just enriching our relationship, the patient-doctor relationship. Yeah, so give me an idea. So you come back Monday, you, you start talking. Like, how many patients on average do you see on a given day? And, so, and, what, and, what, and what kind of time do you have to see them and yeah. talk to them and right. give, give them this information? So we, um, I'm scheduled usually about um, eight or nine patients in a half day. 
um, which is actually pretty good for an internist. Mm -hmm. I think in, I'm not in private practice, and I, in private practice, people actually see even more patients. Uh, I get about 20 minutes per patient, and the catch is that the majority of my patients do not speak English as a first language, so I'm doing this across culture and across language. So that's a that's a pretty challenging demographic. Yeah, I mean, I speak Spanish, okay. so that you know that's you know that helps with a lot of my direct communication with many of my patients. But um, the rest of the time, I'm using phone interpreters. So I've got we've each got a phone in our ear, double-headed phone, and you know, and I'm asking, what do you like to eat? What do you like to eat? I like to eat this. I like to eat this. And we're going back and forth, and it slows you down, but it's really cool because you're mm. learning about culture and family and tradition. Mm. And then I'm on Google the whole time, Googling mm. what they're saying that they like to eat. Okay, so you are from, you're from West Africa and I've never heard of that food and I'm Googling it and I'm pointing at the screen with the interpreter and we're talking about what that is. And I'm, what I'm doing is I'm on a detective. I'm a detective trying to figure out what are the whole plant foods that you grew up eating and that you like to eat mm -hmm. and where can you get them here in New York. That's, that's kind of cool with the, with the interpreter too, because yeah. now everything's slowed down a little bit and you kind of get to like, that is true. Um, uh, maybe analyze it a little bit more, think about it a little bit harder. I like that. That's it's really fun. Yeah. And, and actually the other thing is that the interpreter's learning along with us. And a lot of times after we hang up, the interpreter's like, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's really fun. And that's kind of how I started this whole thing. And as I got you know, more and more engaged in it, I decided to get some formal education around nutrition and lifestyle, and I applied for a grant through NYU. They have a fellowship program where faculty members can, st it's a self-study program, but you get a grant to study a topic of your of your interest, and then the catch is that you have to teach it back to your colleagues. Mm. You have to develop a curriculum, an evidence-based curriculum, to teach it to your colleagues, which is perfect because everyone has this gap. I thought, I'll teach myself nutrition, evidence-based nutrition, and I'll then teach it to my colleagues. And was there a line out the door of your colleagues <laughs> that wanted to learn this? Well, actually, they, I work with an incredibly open-minded and awesome group of colleagues. And yes, they were they were really excited about wow. it. Wow. So I'm, I'm, I'm amazed to hear that. I, no, they are great. And um, so, and, and actually, the, the, my friend who went to the ACLM, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine Conference with me, yeah. she joined in on this fellowship. So the two of us put together a session on cardiovascular disease, a session on insulin resistance, a session on um, cancer prevention, on weight management, um, culinary medicine, and um, our colleagues loved it. What a, what a great way to really learn it, too, exactly. by having to teach it. Exactly. Hmm. And so how soon after that conference... And then that Monday when you got back and you started talking to that, that one patient about what, what uh, they should eat, did you start doing this where you were teaching the faculty? That was a year. About a year. Yeah. Okay. And so, um, and so where are you now with it all? Uh, do you have, uh, don't you have some really cool programming that's going on and yeah. some pilot studies? Yeah. So we, uh, so Essentially, we rolled out that program to faculty, and then um, it was very well received. And we, I then started <clears throat> teaching the doctors in training at my hospital. Started rolling out the curriculum to them. So um, these are the doctors that have finished. They finished medical school, but they're in their residency training. Um, I a couple, you know, about three years ago, got invited to speak at the for the medical students, and I've been doing that teaching nutrition there. It's not a lot of time. I'm not given a lot of time in their curriculum, but it's a start. At least I have contact with them. And we started doing plant-based healthy eating challenges for staff at the hospital, like a 21-day kickstart for staff, which is really fun. And so we basically got this like 360 education. So it's not just the senior physicians, it's the junior physicians, the physicians in training, the medical students, the person who, the medical assistant, the nurses, the diabetes educator, everybody sort of culturally shifting yeah. towards this approach of what we know is really the most health promoting way to eat, which is plants, eating whole plants. So at that point, um, I, you know, was living in this world and helping shift the culture along with my colleagues, and I started hearing about um, this person, Eric Adams. Eric Adams, who, who is the borough president yes. of Brooklyn. Yes. 
Yeah. I remember I first, I think I first heard about him through the New York Times. That piece in piece. January of 2017. Something like that. And I had Eric on the first season of Plant yes. Strong. What a dynamic, amazing man. Amazing. But so, I- so I heard about him and I remember starting to follow him on Twitter and trying to, trying to engage him like, this, this is amazing. Like, this is so great. Okay. You're in a position to you know, to really affect so much change. And so we started to, I started to sort of dance in the similar circles. And then it came to the point where um, I was invited along with um, some other experts here in New York to go to um, City Hall, to the mayor's, deputy mayor's office, to talk about the possibility of launching a, a plant-based initiative somewhere in New York City. And um, the idea was that we, we really wanted to have a program that would serve New Yorkers who ha- you know, pre- otherwise may not have access to information about how a plant-based diet could benefit them. So that people who are living, for example, with type 2 diabetes, the way Brooklyn Borough President Adams was, mm-hmm. have, you know, would have access to here. You know, this is a potentially life-saving approach to treating your type 2 diabetes. So the decision was made to put it in the city's hospital system because the city's hospital system is open to everybody. It's a safety net hospital system, and and, and it serves everybody regardless of ability to pay. Um, And then specifically, because I am at Bellevue Hospital, the decision was made to house it there. And um, Borough President Adams was absolutely instrumental in making this happen. Without him, this absolutely would not have happened. So it was a huge privilege to learn that New York City Health and Hospitals, the hospital system, was willing to invest in a plant-based lifestyle medicine program. You know, it's, it's one thing to hear, you know, we'd like for you to do this, but for, for the hospital system to say, yes, we believe in it enough to support four physicians and a dietitian and a health coach running a comprehensive team-based program to serve New Yorkers mm-hmm. and helping them transition to a plant-based lifestyle. Like, right, and so when did this roll out, this initiative? This initiative, so it was, uh, the initiative was announced last August, August of 2018, and then uh, we officially launched in January of 2019. Right, and what, how has it been going? It's been going awesome. It's been going really well, in fact, When the announcement was made in August 2018, we weren't sure how it was going to be received, to be honest. And I personally decided to put plant-based in the title because I had a suspicion that there was enough interest in the general public that I wasn't just going to call it like the Bellevue Lifestyle Program. I was like, I'm going to put plant-based in the title because I think that's actually going to attract people. We're in an era where people know about plant-based diets. They, they may not know how to switch to a plant-based diet or a healthy way to do it, but they're interested. And I wanted to really legitimize the fact that this is, a, mm-hmm. this is an extremely beneficial therapeutic approach to treating and preventing chronic disease. So I'm like, that's going in the title. Um, so we announced this in August 2018, and the response in New York City was so immense that we actually had to start a hotline <laughs> and a waiting list. Literally a hotline. I, I, like, I joke it was a broccoli hotline. Right. Like patients right. basically like calling the broccoli hotline, I want an appointment in the plant-based program. So we got this huge waiting list that while we were, because we still hadn't finished like all the hiring and everything for the program. So this waiting list developed and at its peak, we had almost 700 people on this list waiting for an appointment for a program that was designed to serve 50 to 100 people in its first six months. So we got cracking, started seeing patients in January and um, it's been great. The enthusiasm among patients, um, the enthusiasm among our hospital staff. Yeah. And the enthusiasm in the community, like, you know, radio shows, people reaching out, people from all over the world wanting to come and shadow and learn from us. Mm. Um, it's been tremendous. Oh, it's huge. It's been tremendous. So with a, with a wait, wait list of 700 people, yeah. um, and when, when it was, I guess, um, f- initiated, thinking that maybe you'd have 50 to 100 people, mm-hmm. I mean, do you, do you, because of that demand, do you have to now... What have you done to accommodate that demand? Right. right. Well, well, we we actually we actually you know got through about half of the waiting list in our first round of funding. So we had we were promised one year of funding. Um, we started in January and we 
we just found out our, we're getting another year of funding, which is great. So that was renewed, and we're hoping to continue to get through that list. And now, we, of course, we have more people coming on the list. So I think what this does is it makes it very clear to um, not just our hospital system, but really the world, that this is an approach that people are interested mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. and that we need more of. Mm-hmm. What? How awesome for you guys to lead like that. Yeah. And, um, it's an honor. Yeah, no, you got you guys are really changing the game. That's that's fantastic. And to think, and I'm sure there's a lot more things that you're doing uh, that I'd like to hear about. But to think how far you've come since that one conference in 2013. I know, right? To now helping hundreds and hundreds and thousands and being an example for other hospital systems around the world. I mean, that's that's impressive. Yeah, it's it's. I've really have been trying to make up for lost time. <laughs> 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 filling in the gaps. Uh, who, who are some of your heroes? Uh, and it doesn't have to be necessarily only in the plant-based movement, but just maybe in life. So, well, you know, I think that in, you know, the first, the first that come to mind are in the nutrition space, just because I, I spend so much of my time revolving yeah. there. And I, I think the people that I most admire are uh, people who really, really know the science. And yet are um, very practical in their approach with, with people and compassionate in how they approach people. So uh, Brenda Davis is one example. She's someone I absolutely adore and admire. Yeah. So, I, think that, I think it's that blend of, you know, she knows the science like nobody's business, but when it comes down to having a person in front of you, yeah. it's, you, you have the science with you and that's gonna guide you in how you treat somebody. Um, but then you have to think about how is this human being who I'm sharing an experience with going to actually change their life? Because as you well know, for lots of people, this is a huge change, huge, huge Mm -hmm. change. And people face all kinds of barriers and, uh, particularly in the, you know, the population that I work with, the majority are living at the poverty line Mm -hmm. and below. And they have lives that are very, very demanding and challenging and sometimes don't even have access to some of the healthier foods that I, you know, that they would love to be eating. So I think it's that blend of the science, but how do you break it down for someone who's sitting in front of you and really wants to do their best, but is might be having a hard time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned Brenda Davis. I mean, Brenda, you're right. She is absolutely brilliant, knows the science like nobody's business. She's also about as modest and humble as you can get in a human being. That's exactly right. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful um, number of qualities that she has. You you mentioned the the demographic you're dealing with yeah. and those barriers. Um, uh, very poor population, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. But tell me if the great thing about that and about eating the way mm-hmm. we like to eat. Because it doesn't have to be expensive. No. Right. I'm sure you you teach no. them how this is this can be the. Oh no! Yeah. People save money. Right. People save money. Right. I mean, I think cost is one thing. Um, and certainly if you're eating convenience foods that happen to be plant-based, your, your, your costs might go up. Um, but if you're sticking to the simplest foods with the most nutrient density, yeah. you know, beans and frozen veggies, if they're not in season. I mean, we're in New York, so we're not, you know, we're not, we don't have the luxury of having everything in season that we want all the time. So... Yeah some fruits, whole grains, root vegetables, those are all pretty affordable. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, they're not accessible everywhere in every neighborhood in New York. Um, but as far as cost goes, they are within reach of many, many people. And my experience has actually been with this, you know, very culturally diverse patient population that I take care of, is that many of these foods are very, very relevant culturally Mm. already and so it's not been such a huge stretch to get people to start to use these foods to crowd out the other foods they were eating they just didn't they just didn't really fully understand when i say you know what are the foods that you think are making your cholesterol go up they'll say something like bread Mm -hmm. and i'll say well it's actually no it's you know that's depending on what kind of bread you're eating it might not be the healthiest kind but that's not necessarily what's driving your cholesterol up yeah they just have never heard a doctor say well eating chicken three times a day is a problem for your cholesterol right they've never heard that before but they believe they i have credibility to them yeah 
we've gotten a few emails from people with a lot of questions about dogs being carnivores, and I, I get it, right? Most people believe that dogs are carnivores, but what I learned recently while interviewing Dr. Ernie Ward is that dogs can digest protein from multiple sources because dogs are actually omnivores, actually scavenging omnivores to be exact. Now, evolving alongside humans over tens of thousands of years, dogs developed these gut enzymes that allow them to digest a wide variety of foods. Here's a fun fact. Even wolves in the wild derive nutrition from both plant and animal sources. So if you'd like to try wild earth dog food for your favorite dog, like our Jade, visit wildearth.com or Amazon and use the code PLANTSTRONG for 40% off your first order. I read recently an interesting fact when it comes to um, saturated fat. Mm -hmm. The number two source of saturated fat in the American diet comes from chicken. Correct. Right? I mean, because we're eating so much chicken right. and it's about what, uh, 30% saturated fat, I think. I don't know the exact number, but yeah. it's where it, it contains quite a bit oh, and yeah. we're eating quite a bit. Yep. So that's a cross product that yep. adds up. So I want to switch gears for a sec and uh, I want to take advantage of kind of your doctor skills. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I just want to throw some things at you and I don't want you to talk too long on them because okay. I got a number of things. Okay. But um, pace myself. But pace yourself, and uh, it, it'll be a hodgepodge of stuff. All right. So we'll just have fun with this. Sounds good. First thing is, what is NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, mm -hmm. and why do over fifty percent of Americans are supposedly suffering from it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an epidemic. So uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is literally exactly what it says. So yep. when you have a fatty liver, um, typically it can come from either overconsumption of alcohol you know, to excess or from lifestyle, yep. not, not related to alcohol. Um, and then there's some other more rare causes, but that, those are really, that's really the breakdown. So, um, when we're looking at non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, what we're talking about is the buildup of fats inside the cells of the liver, which over time start to cause quite a bit of inflammation in many people. And when you have chronic inflammation for years and years, that actually can lead to cirrhosis, which is the scarring of the liver. You start to get decreased liver function, and ultimately um, that can end up in someone needing a liver transplant. Yep. In fact, non-alcoholic non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is, um, I think, slated to be the number one cause, number one indication for liver transplant, um, if it's not already. Right. Um, because now we have good treatments for some of the other causes, like hepatitis C. Yeah, I just find that to be dumbfounding that yeah. that because of what yeah. we're eating now, yeah. the horrendous things we're putting into our mouth, yep. that the the number one cause of yep. fatty liver is not alcohol it's actually right right, right. all the it's just calorie-rich and processed crap yeah. yeah 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 what is metabolic syndrome i'm sure a mm -hmm. lot of people hear about this mm -hmm. kind of uh syndrome but what is it and again why do so many people have it well it's that's a good segue from from fatty liver because metabolic syndrome is essentially um the um the grouping of problems with blood sugar or insulin resistance as well as high blood pressure high cholesterol and usually an elevated waist circumference so you're carrying the you know extra fat around the middle yeah and also very very common and coexists with fatty liver disease because yeah. when you carry fat around the middle it tends to also deposit in your organs like the liver yeah there you go there you go i just Okay, so again, diet related. I'm, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure these are things that you see every day in your practice. No, I don't see them every day. I see them every hour. Okay, every every hour. That's right. Every twenty minutes. <laughs> Just about. Just, every now and then, I have a young, yes, supposedly healthy individual. Yeah, yeah. Who does not have these conditions? But it's, these are very common. Yep. Um, 
So right now I want to play a game with you, and this is good or bad, okay? I'm going to say something, you tell me if it's good or bad, and then you say why, and we'll try and keep the answer to a minute, okay? Okay. First thing, nitric oxide. Good. Okay, why is it good, and how do I get nitric oxide? Nitric oxide, nitric oxide is great for your blood vessels. It helps the lining of the blood vessels stay healthy and helps the blood vessels function so that you can bring blood flow to all the organs that need it, when you need it. Right. What's a great source of nitric oxide? Leafy greens. Leafy greens. There's a lot of dialogue right now around saturated fats. Yes. Good, bad, yes. you know. Obviously, and I think in our camp, we believe saturated fats are unnecessary. We don't need them, and they contribute to, you name it, cancer, mm -hmm. heart disease, mm -hmm. insulin resistance. Keto, paleo people, mm -hmm. they're like, oh, yeah, saturated fats are good, right? It's mm -hmm. like the lifeblood of their program. What do you think? Well, I don't think it's a belief that we don't need them. We don't need them. Right. We just don't. You know, we are capable of making saturated fats if we, if, if our bodies need them. You don't have to consume them. Um, and when we do consume them, they are, um, sh they are directly shown to cause inflammation in the body. And many other, they're the number one reason that our blood cholesterol goes up. And they are the one of, they are the most potent uh, trigger for fatty liver mm. more than more than eating pure candy or juice or mm -hmm. soda mm -hmm. like almost double mm -hmm. so consuming saturated fats um, is extremely harmful and especially when you consume a lot of them and I know you were just at a conference this last weekend mm -hmm. at Montfiore with Dr. Robert Osfeld one of the speakers there was Walter Willett correct yes and he gave a talk and one of the things he talked about was kind of why plant-based uh, fats are healthier because of the ratio mm -hmm. of uh, polyunsaturated mm -hmm. to saturated. Mm -hmm. Well, he taught, he showed a great slide that was yeah. basically, you know, of all the different types of prote protein sources that are out there, or con I should say foods that are highest in protein, which ones have the most optimal ratio of polyunsaturated fats to saturated fats. And it was, it's all the plants. So it's, I think on that particular slide, it was lentils, tofu, and almonds. Right. And, it, and, but I mean, lentils, if I'm not mistaken, do they have any saturated fat? Maybe a minuscule amount? Minuscule amount. amount. Right. Now, yeah. now nuts do have some saturated some. fat. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons why my father doesn't want his patients mm -hmm. doing a lot of nuts. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, but predominantly yeah. we're talking polyunsaturated right. fats. Right. 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 To, the, to the moon and back. Right, exactly. Um, what about fiber? Good or bad? Good. Good. And what percent of America is deficient in fiber? Do you have any idea? I mean, I think I 97, something ridiculous something like, like that. Something like 97. I think the average American gets 16 grams of fiber per day, right. and that target of 25 grams a day, you know, there's different different societies have different amounts, but 25 grams a day is sort of like... That's really a, cutting it pretty low. Yeah. And what do you like with I, your patients? At least 40. 40. At least 40. <clears throat> um, yeah, fiber makes the world go round. Yeah. Gotta love it. Let's jump into TMAO. Okay. Okay. Great. And love what that. is TMAO? What does it stand for? Tri uh, TMAO stands for trimethylamine uh, oxide. Okay. And uh, trimethylamine N oxide. And what is so wonderful about? Uh, or bad about mm -hmm. TMAO? So um, TMAO is a molecule that is actually produced by our gut bacteria in response to our eating certain types of foods. So when we eat foods that contain choline, as you might find in an egg yolk, yeah. it's in lots of foods, but it's highly, highly concentrated in eggs, uh, or carnitine, which is found in meats, our gut bacteria transform those nutrients into trimethylamine, which is then processed in the liver into TMAO. Right. And TMAO is uh, one of the sort of key players in the development of atherosclerosis that has been discovered um, in recent years. So it's, it kind of does everything bad. It accelerates the, the progression of atherosclerosis. It makes your platelets and your blood more sticky. Um, it's also been linked to kidney disease. It's been linked to insulin resistance. Mm. Um, and in clinical trials, it's, also, it's been shown to be associated with all-cause mortality, cardiovascular mortality, heart failure. I mean, it's just, it, it's just an incredibly um, pathogenic 
molecule. Yeah. Um, and when you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, mm-hmm. you're producing what? No TMAO? Very little. Very, I mean, they've, little. they've done studies on vegans and vegetarians, and they're consistently produce less TMAO or have lower TMAO levels than omnivores consistently. Right. right. It's not, it's not always zero, but it's, it's much less. Right. Uh, soy, you a fan of soy? I am a fan of soy. Okay. What kind of soy? So I tend to, I myself tend to stick to the less sort of less processed, more traditional forms of soy that we've seen be beneficial over centuries in other parts of the world. Um, and that's what I recommend to my patients. So for example, edamame, so mm. the actual young soybean, um, tempeh, that's fantastic. Um, tofu and soy milk are also considered traditional forms of soy. So those are great. And I, I definitely try to stay away from the sort of more processed soy isolates where the yeah. proteins are extracted from the soy. Um, so I try to stick to the, the less processed forms. Right. Very good. What about eggs? Gonna have to go with not so great. Yep. Slash bad. Yep. What about <laughs> so? What about cholesterol? I mean, um, yeah. Uh, do we we do we need cholesterol? Is it okay if there's cholesterol in eggs or no? We don't need that kind. Yeah. It's, it's there's a lot of misunderstandings about that. So I'm glad you brought that up. So first of all, we don't need to consume any cholesterol because we make all the cholesterol that we need. Um, so there's no need to consume it in your, from your food. It doesn't enhance anything to consume it from your food. And when we do consume it from food, it does raise our blood cholesterol, contrary to what some people say. Right. It doesn't raise it as much as saturated fats. And yet those two things tend to track together in the same foods. Mm. So it's almost a moot point. Um, even if, even in cases where it doesn't raise the cholesterol as much, it still tends to be harmful because it can help it helps oxidize the LDL cholesterol. It has other sort of vascular effects. Um, and as I said before, it makes your body produce more TMAO. Right. So there's lots of reasons to avoid it. Um, you know, there's a lot of, um, again, dialogue <clears throat> around fruit. Yeah. What do you think? Fruit, good or bad? I'm going to give fruit a giant thumbs up. So I, I think when I talk to patients who are eating um, what I consider to be a very unhealthy diet. So one of the first places I start is with fruit because most people really like fruit. So it's, they feel good about being told to eat more fruit. They yeah. enjoy that message. And they've, they've gotten this impression all along that fruit is bad for them. And they're, they, think that, they think they should be avoiding fruit because they're worried about sugar. Yep. And instead they're eating a ham sandwich or yep. potato chips. So um, dispelling the fruit myth is something I'm really passionate about doing because um, it's extort- fruits are some of the healthiest foods you could possibly eat. They're you know, rich in phytonutrients and antioxidants. The data show that not only do they not increase the risk of type 2 diabetes, they actually are linked to lower risk of type 2 diabetes. And if you already have diabetes, they're linked to lower risk of complications yeah. and lower risk of dying. So uh, everybody should be consuming fruit. Yeah. We had a woman that came to one of our medical immersions uh, not too long ago. She hadn't had a piece of fruit in a year because oh, her, so her trainer told her not to have fruit. I mean, again, it's just like... I, who, are, who, are these, who are these unhealthy fruit eaters? Have you ever met a, a fruit eater who was no. suffering from, you know, where fruit was the cause of their, you know, being overweight or fruit was the cause of... It just You mm. just don't... It's not... No, it's incredibly I just, healthful I, food. I just had Robbie Barbero. Yeah, uh, and, and you know Robbie, of course, right? I mean, probably seventy-five percent of what he eats is yeah. just fruit, right? Yeah. And you talk about his insulin resistance and right. all that. It's amazing right. what, what these he uses guys are very doing. little insulin for the amount of carbohydrate that he, he consumes because yeah. he's very insulin sensitive. Yes, eating a lot of fruit. Yes, not a lot of fat. Right. Um, what about? <clears throat> and then we're going to move on, but. HDL. So yeah. I've got I've got a seventy five HDL. I eat the standard American diet. Mm-hmm. My doctor said that I'll never have a heart attack because I've got this great ratio of HDL to LDL. I mean, what do you say to people that have these high HDLs? I mean, honestly, the the data around 
high HDL being protective are um, that's not that's not where the current thinking is anymore mm. on HDL. And so the current understanding of HDL is that it's much less about the number mm-hmm. that you see when your blood test is done, and much more about the function. That's that's really. Can you say that one more time? It's not yeah. so much about the number. It's more about the function of your HDL molecules that you do have. Okay. And the number that you're seeing has nothing to do with the function. Uh-huh. And when you say function, what do you mean by function? So HDL sort of functions as a scavenger molecule, soaking up extra cholesterol that you don't need and helping the body you know, process it safely and get rid of it. So, so that's the first function. So if you, you know, this is a very like crude analogy, but if you think of HDL as a garbage man, if there's not a lot of garbage to clean up, you don't need a lot of garbage men. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so the fir- so the function can be measured in research studies. It's not there's no real clinical assay for the function yet. But we know that every now and then I have a plant based eater who gets worried that their HDL maybe has dropped because they're consuming less, say, saturated fat. Which is saturated fat will drive up your HDL number, mm-hmm. and yet the more saturated fat in your diet, it will render your HDL molecules pro-inflammatory instead of being anti-inflammatory. So then you have garbage men that are not cleaning up the trash. So it's almost like a rogue HDL. Exactly, a rogue HDL. I like mm, that. Mm. So, so yeah, so the current thinking around HDL is it's much more about the function than it is about the number. Right. Um, I know that people ask my father about HDL. And sure. my father says, you know, you look at some of these populations that that don't have heart disease, that don't have diabetes, and they have HDLs, some, some of them, in the, you know, the low 20s, the low right. 30s. Right. So, right. yeah, yeah. I mean, historically, people, the reason people sort of started to see, um, started to come up with this theory that higher HDL was better is because it did look protective because people who, the metabolic syndrome that you asked me about before, yeah. you know, one of those features is low HDL and high triglycerides. Um, but it's, Now what we're hearing is, what we're learning is that it's not the low HDL itself that's the problem. It's this is just a marker for the fact that the person has metabolic syndrome. Yeah. And so if you treat the metabolic syndrome, which by the way, a plant-based diet is excellent at treating, Mm -hmm. then you fix the underlying problem. I don't care about the number of your HDL. Right. Right. Go to the root causation. Exactly. What, um, and I told, I got to ask you one more thing about this. I love it. That is... So LDL, should we be concerned about the par- particle size, like if it's a big fluffy or if it's a small dense? That is also a very pertinent question in 2019. But um, I think the, the basic answer to that is that what we care the most about is the total number of LDL particles. And actually, that's relatively easily measured on a blood test. Yeah. Um, it's not the standard LDL number that you see, but um, sort of if you go to one level of a fancier test, you can measure something called an ApoB level, which really reflects sort of all of the potentially atherogenic particles in your bloodstream, including your LDL. And that's really considered the best indicator of, you know, how, what is the atherogenicity of your cholesterol and profile. what does that word mean for, for people that may not know? So atherogenicity basically means the propensity of the, the types of cholesterol that you have floating around your bloodstream to cause vas- cardiovascular disease. Got it. Got it. Clog up the arteries. Right. Um, going into 2020. Yeah. What are you most excited about? Well, honestly, I, so I've sort of two, two things that I'm adore doing. One is simply taking care of people and helping them get healthier. And I'm doing that in, you know, the context of the plant-based lifestyle program. I'm doing that in the context of my regular primary care practice. Um, and so that's going to keep going. I'm going to, I'm hopefully going to be able to, um, do more work in terms of helping others start similar programs, Mm -hmm. you know, just all the people that have reached out to me, hey, how, to, how, how are you doing this? What are you learning from it? What, what's going well? What, what have you learned? Um, that, those kinds of conversations that need to happen for other hospitals to do, a, to do similar projects, yeah. programs like ours. So that's, that's one side. And then the other side is um, I absolutely adore researching topics, creating talks, and speaking to other physicians about plant-based nutrition. And I think, although I, I love going to conferences where – physicians are already excited about plant-based nutrition. I think the, where the real work needs to happen, of course, is people who are like me in 
2013 who had never heard of the science behind plant-based nutrition. And so speaking, I'm speaking at the American College of Physicians, which is the largest group of internal medicine doctors, um, I don't know, in the world, but definitely United States. And I spoke there uh, last year in 2018, and I'm going to speak there again in the spring of 2020. And it's a huge, it's a huge opportunity. They don't have a lot of talks on nutrition at a standard medical conference and for internists. And so when I spoke last year, they on food as medicine, they um, they set me up in this room that held, I think it held 700 people. And there was a line out the door. They actually had to have people leave. They, had, they were like, we had, they called. They, they were like, we're gonna have to call the fire marshal because there's too many people in this room. So there's so much interest yeah. among doctors. It's so exciting to see. I mean, not every. You know, let's be honest. Like a lot of doctors don't, may not want to hear this, but there is definitely interest. Mm-hmm. So that those are the people I want to reach, at yeah. least to start with. Well, so. how long do you think it'll be um, before we have? I'll just throw out a number, 50% of doctors that have bought in and are like mm. practicing this to their patients that need it. Well, I think we've made a lot of progress in the last five years. I mean, it's definitely not linear, it's exponential. Mm-hmm. You know, we are um, with the, um, the combination of social media, the combination of films that have come out that have influenced a lot of people and inspired people. And then, you know, I think it just really takes, it takes, even though the science is so strong, it really just takes hearing about or seeing one patient, one friend or one family member have this, some kind of a transformation through plant-based nutrition to, to say like, oh wait, I gotta pay attention to this. Mm-hmm. And that's my hope for the students that I teach and the trainees. You know, I, I can talk to them about the science, but I want them to start practicing it as soon as they can so that they can see what I saw. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't a believer until that first patient that I had where his diabetes basically went away in four months. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I didn't think patients could, you know, I was one of those people that said people won't change. Mm-hmm. But it's like, just try it. Just, just talk to people. Not everyone's going to change, but many people are, and they deserve to have the information. Mm-hmm. So my mission is really to help people, to help physicians see that it's not that hard to talk about it. It doesn't, you know, it, it, you know, it, it can take time, but you don't have to use up a lot of time. And then you'll see, when you see one or two patients start to get healthier, you're going to be hooked like I was. Well, and they're also hearing it from somebody that in their heart of hearts knows and believes that this is right, what, what can fix whatever ails them. Yeah. As opposed to a doctor that is like, yeah, you could look into this. You know, most people can't do it. It's too hard. It's too expensive. Yeah. You're eating twigs and berries. Who wants to do that, right? Right. So no, you've you got to own it. Yeah. you yeah. got to live it. I mean, you don't, and I, you know, mm. it, not every physician is going to, I tell them you don't have to be plant-based yourself to start talking about nutrition, but mm. it sure does help if you start thinking about, mm. you know, how you eat too. And, and the fact that you, it may be hard for you to change your diet, you can own that. And use that when you talk to your patients. Say, I'm on a journey, too. I'm trying to do this, too. You know, we're all human. Um, (laughs) Well, not everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But, yeah, I think things are changing quickly, and I'm hopeful. I'm very hopeful for the future. Mm -hmm. No, I've I've never been as hopeful. It's just, it's it's crazy. And I I think, um, uh, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, but I truly believe that this is the silver bullet that in many ways can, you know, cure our healthcare costs. It can help mitigate climate change. Of course. Uh, obviously, you know, all the unnecessary uh, killing that's going on right yeah. now on the planet. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. what a wonderful solution. Win, win, win. Win, win, win. And you are winning big time. So, um, Dr. Michelle McMacken, uh, boy, to think how far you've come since 2013, it's pretty staggering. Yeah. yeah. So I want to thank, thank you, you for for having the heart of a hero for being a, a game changer in your profession, for being such a, an inspiring, uh, beautiful physician uh, that that not only physicians but also women can like see. Wow, I wanna, I wanna do what she does, and um, just great work. Thank so, you. Thanks thank for you. those words. Appreciate oh, it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And uh, with that, let me just do my sign off. Peace. <laughs> Engine 2, keep it playing strong. Love it.
when I spend time with Dr. McMacken, I leave with a huge smile on my face because she makes me realize just how much the field of medicine is finally coming on board with this whole plant-based message. And it makes me feel so hopeful and encouraged. It is a Herculean effort to do what Dr. McMacken has been doing, working tirelessly within her practice to care for patients while innovating and piloting this premier plant-based program that's making it easier for others to do the same. And I feel pretty confident that history will look very kindly on Dr. McMacken and the monumental efforts that she has made in bringing this message into the mainstream. I appreciate the time that she gave me, and I'm confident that we will visit with her again in the, in the future. If you want to follow her on social media, we will link her Instagram in our show notes. You heard Dr. McMacken discussing the ApoB test, which reminded me why I think it's important that people should know their numbers because we truly, we can't manage what we don't measure. If you were fortunate enough to attend one of our medical immersion retreats, you know that we conduct a full before and after biometric screening where we test not only your lipid panel, which is comprised of your total cholesterol, your LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, and your triglycerides. We also do a fasting glucose because we want to know um, what your blood sugar is and if there's any chance for prediabetes or diabetes. In addition, people are always curious to know what their B12 levels are as well as vitamin D. And it's sad that we live in a time when access to this kind of information is not only costly, but it also requires a provider to prescribe the tests. And I am really pleased to announce that we have just partnered with the nation's leader in affordable direct-to-consumer lab testing. They offer hundreds of lab tests and are partnered with LabCorp and Quest Diagnostics, the two largest labs in the country, and are priced up to 85% off retail. I want you to visit plantstrong.com backslash bloodwork to learn more about the tests that we recommend and how you can have them done today. You heard me mention Brenda Davis. For those of you that don't know, Brenda is probably one of the foremost plant-based nutritionists on the planet. And she will be joining us for our ninth annual Camp Plant Stock uh, event from August 14th to the 16th, just outside Asheville, North Carolina in the Black Mountains. In addition to sharing the weekend with Brenda Davis, we'll also be sharing the weekend with the likes of Dr. Michael Greger, uh, who will be sharing his new book, uh, How Not to Diet. We'll also have Dr. Michael Clapper, one of the patriarchs of the plant-based movement. We will have Dr. Neil Barnard from PCRM sharing his new book on hormones. Uh, Marco Borges, the trainer for Jay-Z and Beyonce. James Wilkes, Mr. Game Changers. Dr. Will Balsowicz, the gut health MD doctor. God, do we all know how important the microbiome is these days. My family many chefs, and many, many other experts. You do not want to miss this ninth annual event. Go and visit campplantstock.com and register to join us on the mountain today. Thank you for listening and subscribing to our show. I want you to know that we read each and every one of your reviews and we appreciate each and every one. If you want to learn more about this season or today's guests and sponsors, please visit PlantStrongPodcast.com. The PlantStrong Podcast team includes Scott Battisill, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, Wade Clark, and Carrie Barrett. I want to thank my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Ann Cryle Esselstyn, 
for creating a legacy that will be carried on for generations and being willing to go against the current and trudge upstream to the causation. We are all better for it. I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres, is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiberfueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant U, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing. We're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there.